Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. It's so good to be with all of you uh, this morning. Those of you who are joining us online, I hope you're enjoying your spring break. It's good to have all of our elementary age Joyland children in, in the room. My name is Andy Flank, and I'm on staff here at, at the church. And when I was a little boy, I really enjoyed reading books like this. They were called Choose Your Own Adventure books. And, and maybe you're familiar with them, but if you're not, it would give you some sort of scenario like you're in a castle and you're walking down a hallway. And as you walk down the hallway, there's a door on your right and a door on your left. One door is red, one door is blue. And then at the bottom of the page, it would say something like, if you want to take the red door, open the red door, turn to page three. If you want to open the other door, turn to page four. And then it would just, you would continue to have little decisions like that throughout the book, and it would keep going until it came to the end of the story. At which point, if you were like me, you would immediately then go back to earlier in the book and see what would have happened if you'd made a different decision, if you'd chosen the other door. And it was fun to see all the different scenarios and how each of your choices would impact what eventually happened in the end. And then after you'd kind of seen all those different scenarios, you sort of pick which one of your decisions you thought was best, and that would kind of be your final choice. Like, for instance, in this book on the cover, it says there are 33 different endings in this particular story. Of course, in real life, that's not how decisions work. When we're faced with decisions, we don't get to run 33 different scenarios and then pick which one of the decisions we like best based on the outcomes and which one we prefer. We have to make one decision, and on the front end of that choice, we will never know with certainty how it's all going to turn out. This is why, ultimately, there really are no easy decisions. As the author Dan Allender has pointed out, to decide requires a death a dying to a thousand options, the putting aside of a legion of possibilities in order to choose just one. Allender says, just look at the ending of the word decide in other words in our English language that have that same ending. Decide, homicide, suicide, pesticide, herbicide. The Latin root word for decide means to cut off. Ultimately, when we make a decision, it cuts us off. It separates us from nearly infinite options until we select just one single path. I'm guessing that in your own life right now, you're facing at least one decision where you might be struggling with what to do. Maybe you're struggling with something that's some sort of relationship. Could be a romantic relationship, could be a business relationship, could just be a relationship with a friend or a family member, or, or maybe you're trying to make a decision that has to do with your future, something to do with work or school or going back to school, like trying to chase after a promotion, or, or maybe like what, what your major should be, what your career should look like, who, who should be a good mentor or advisor. Maybe you have an opportunity in front of you and you just don't know, should I or should I not act on this opportunity? Well, today in my message, we're going to be talking about what goes into making good decisions that honor God and how our decision-making process is shaped by the way we view the world, the way we view ourselves, and of course, how we view God. 
Now, throughout my message, I'm going to use the metaphor of walking through a door or not walking through the door as a way of talking about making a decision. I just want to let you know, we're not going to get to the door and that part of the, the, the talk for a few minutes, but I felt like I should address it so you would just stop wondering me, like, why did it randomly have a door on the stage, right? Now, as we think about making a decision to guide us in this process, I want us to look at a passage that Pastor Chris actually talked about several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, if you didn't get to hear Chris's message, uh, his sermon in February, you can go to our website and check it out. It was a really good message. But what I want to do is I want to highlight one part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that meant a great deal to me. So what we're going to look at today begins in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. So if you'll turn there in your Bible or go there on your phone, uh, just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But as you're looking for that, I want to sort of remind you of the context that Paul was facing as he was writing this letter. He was writing to the church in Corinth. Now, if, if you remember in like high school history or just, you know, sort of in popular culture, the two most famous Uh, city-states that existed in ancient Greece were Athens and Sparta. And, And like, they are really important. But you should know that in that era, Corinth was also considered to be very, very significant and important. And one of the reasons was because it was a, uh, center of commerce and trade. It was located on multiple ancient trade routes, and it had two significant ports. This made it extremely wealthy. Besides the shipping industry, another big part of the economy of Corinth had to do with the fact that it had numerous temples to various ancient deities. And in these uh, temples, there were various sort of pagan uh, religious rituals that they would engage in that sort of functioned uh, as like their version of an ancient red light district, right? So just consider our audience who's here. You can kind of read between the lines on what that was. But people would come from all over the empire to go and visit these temples. Over time, Corinth developed a reputation of being a very fast-paced center of commerce that was focused on money and status and success and pleasure. It was a culture that glorified winners and didn't care much about anyone else writing about 50 or 60 years before the Apostle Paul, the ancient Roman poet Horace, he wrote of Corinth, in Corinth, none but the tough survive. So it is in th- to this city that Paul is writing to the early church. And yet, despite the reputation of Corinth of being a place filled with all these very successful people, powerful, high-up status people within the empire, It seems that the people who actually were part of the church in Corinth, they weren't particularly high up on the proverbial food chain. And we think this because of what Paul wrote in verse 26. Just look at it. It says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now, I want you to think about those words and think about how Paul is talking to these early Corinthian Christians. He was writing to a place that prided itself on status and success, glorifying money and power. But Paul doesn't seem to be giving them much respect at all. And we have to ask, like, what is he doing here? Had he never read like the ancient version of like how to win friends and influence people? 
right? It's not like these concepts just emerged. Hundreds of years before Paul, the philosopher Aristotle and the politician Cicero had, had, had written about if you're a speaker or a writer and you want to get the audience on your side, the key is to make them happy. And the way that you make them happy is you praise them. Pour on the flattery. That's what they recommended. But that's not what Paul does. Now, maybe the reason Paul didn't do that is because he wasn't speaking to a church that was full of as many sophisticated people as I am today. Right? This church is filled with so many well-dressed people. It's clear you're people of taste and intelligence. Right? You've got straight shooters, you know, like just your upper management potential all over you guys. Is that an, I, like Sam trying the flattery thing to try to get you on my side? Is that working? <laughs> but that's not what Paul does. He asks these rhetorical questions. Instead of praising the church in Corinth, he asks them things that are based on their inadequacies. He says, are you guys wise? Well, not by human standards. Are you influential? Not really. Are you people of status because of who your families are? No, not that either. Again, we have to ask, what is he doing here? Well, it seems to be that Paul really wants the Christians in Corinth to say, to, to understand and reflect on the fact that relative to their city and the things that were important within their city, they don't measure up. But what's interesting is where Paul goes in the next few verses, because he doesn't seem to be like sort of like speaking down to them in a patronizing way as if like, well, I know like these are not like the honors class, right? Like we, you're not going to be able to be that high of achievers. And like, I'm just trying to like tamp down expectations because you guys know who you are. You, you're not going to be able to get to where like some, you know, like the church in Ephesus, they've got a lot more potential, Right. No, that's, that's not what he's doing here. In fact, in verse 27, you can see it. It says, but God. That's how it starts. But God. And this is a two-word phrase that we're going to keep coming back to for the rest of this message. But God. And it says, but God chose the foolish things of the world. I just want to pause there to explain one little phrase. The foolish things of the world. Now, in the Greek, it just says, Foolish, Like, that's the literal translation. So one way you could say, like, talk about this particular verse is you could say, but God chose the foolish ones. Or, but God chose the foolish people, all right? In the NIV, it says, but God chose the foolish things of the world. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. But God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, when Paul says, as it is written, he's actually quoting the prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament. Over 600 years earlier, Jeremiah had told the people of Israel, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, 
justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. In essence, Paul is using the words of Jeremiah to contrast what we can accomplish and what God can accomplish. It might have seemed like Paul was being harsh to the Corinthian church when he says, hey, you guys aren't smart or influential or wealthy, but that's not really what he's going for. What he's trying to do is tap into a stream of ideas that has gone throughout all of scripture, which says that our inadequacies don't really matter in light of who God is and how mighty he is. This is why Paul's words at the start of verse 27 are so critical for us to remember. But God, because when God shows up, things are different. And when we look at this passage, I want us to sort of contrast the phrase, but God, which we actually see in verse 27, with a phrase that although we don't actually see it in verse 26, I think is strongly implied. As he's talking about who they are, Paul's in a sense, saying, but I, like that's who they are. Paul is asking us to make a decision in our life. When some new opportunity comes before us, will our first thought be to look to ourselves and our own abilities and say, but I can't do that. Or are we going to look to God and his greatness and respond with the words, but God can. This leads us to the place of decision that I was talking about at the beginning of my message. See, if we face an open door, in a sense, this side of the door represents where I am right now and the things I can control. When I'm on this side of the door, I'm able to focus on my abilities, my experiences, my past history, the things I'm good at and the things I'm not good at, the things I'm proud of and the things of which I'm ashamed. I might not even like how things are on this side of the door, but at least it is known. The other side of the door represents the unknown. When I'm on this side, I can say things like, but I'm not sure, but I'm kind of afraid, but I don't know if it's all going to work out. But if I walk through this door, I'm putting my trust in God. This is a place of faith. And I'm saying, but God has a plan, but God will work it out. What will we say? But I or but God. John Ortberg has noted that when we read the words, but God, it means that this world does not get the last word on who you are or what you've become or what you might do. The world might say your situation is never going to change. The world may say that lack of education will always embarrass you, that addiction will always enslave you, that depression will always defeat you, that failure will always define you, that the past will always haunt you, that the future will always frighten you. But God says otherwise. But God begs to differ. But God doesn't see you for what you are right now. He sees you for what you can become. But God looks at you and says, I know what you can be. When I see you, I see a mighty man of God. When I see you, I see a mighty woman of God. I don't care if you're young or you're old or you even think you're qualified. I will make you into the person I want you to be. This idea of but God is at the heart of Christianity. When Jesus was talking with his disciples about salvation in Mark chapter 10, they just, they couldn't get their heads around it. They couldn't fathom how it worked. And Jesus said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. 
On this side of the door, we think about what I can accomplish or the things that I'm afraid of. But on the other side of the door, God looks at us and says, you're just the right age. You're just the right gender. You have just the right skills for exactly what I have in mind. I have a plan for you to prosper you and not to harm you. I am for you and not against you. What will we choose? <laughs> when we look at that door, we say, I said before that it represents the unknown, but in some ways, it, it, it's, it's actually like a little bit of a blockade because we know that something unknown is on the other side. And as I mentioned, we might not even love where we are right now, but at least it's known. And somehow that often feels safer to us. But we come up with these reasons. We might call them excuses for why we can't walk through the door. We say, but, but I don't have money. I can't do that. Or, but I don't have the time. I mean, I'm super busy. Or, but I can't do that. I'm not trained. I, but I don't have the education. Or, or we just, but, but I've been divorced. Oh, we, we just look at the situation in, in our own strength. We say, but I'm not sure it's going to work out. You don't know. I'm afraid. Oh, sometimes, but, but I, you don't know about my past. I've done some things that might disqualify me from God being able to use me in the future. I, but I have a past sin. It's, it's terrible. I, 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 or not even in the past, right now. But, but I'm addicted to some substance, some habit. And I have tried to give it to God over and over and over. I have confessed it again and again and again. But I can't go through that door because, but I'm addicted to something. Or, but I'm a single mom or a single dad. But, but I'm depressed. But I'm in a loveless marriage. But I'm the victim of abuse. Whatever it is, we look at all these things. We say, but I, but I, but I, but I. And I mean, as a pastor, I've, I've heard all of these. But I, but I, but I, but I. And sometimes I just, I just want to tell people, your butt is too big. <laughs> well, one T, one T, right? Okay. Ooh, whoops. <laughs> Let's see here. All right. Kids, if you're taking notes, one T, right? That's just one of the reasons they don't let me do counseling here at the church. I, that's... Here's the thing. I don't say that out of a spirit of judgment. I get it. I've been there. I've said those things too, but I, but I, but I. It's not just, though, that it's not just that your butt is too big. But as John Orberg has written, God is bigger than your butt. 
Can we get an amen on that? That's right. Again, just one T. If you tweet that, get that right. And, and really, at this point, I, I just want to acknowledge that I'm deeply indebted to John for a message that he preached over, I think, over a decade ago. I remember listening to it, and his ideas and even much of the structure of this message are still with me today. I'm so grateful for the way he highlighted that dis- difference between but I and but God. It's blessed me. But here's the thing. When we're faced with a door that looks like that, we often dress up our excuses, our but eyes. We dress them up in fancy language. And we don't, when we're, somebody is asking us about like, well, why don't you just do it? And it's like, well, I know I've been praying for this opportunity and now it's come up, but, but I can't do it. But we don't say, because I have ex- an excuse, right? We say, because I have a reason. I have a because. I I, I, I can't do, but I can't do it because of X or Y or Z. Or, but I can't do it because, well, you know what he's like. You know what she's like. You know what they're like. I, I can't go through that door because they would never go along with this. But God is bigger than our reasons and our excuses and our becauses, which is why we have to turn our but eyes into but God cans. If we go back to the beginning of this message, you have to remember that the root of that word decide is to cut off. And when you face the opportunity to go through this door, it is an unknown. And you might have some good reasons for why you're hesitant to walk through that door. But I just want you to know, like, If you choose to do that, you are cutting yourself off from other options, right? Those other choices are are dying because you're going to walk through this door. You have to make a single decision. And wouldn't it be great if it was like a choose-your-own-adventure novel and you could, or novel, these are definitely not novels, choose-your-own-adventure book, and you could know all the different options that are out there, and you could pick the one that you like best. But that's not how it works. This is where faith comes in. But here's something that I often hear when people are facing a door of opportunity. Now, sometimes people are really hard on themselves in the way they say this, and sometimes people come across with a real sort of sanctified humility in the way they say this. But they look at that and they say, but I'm not sure it's going to work out. What happens if I walk through that door and I somehow bring God dishonor because I fail? But I'm not sure that I'm good enough to take that step of faith. And when people say that to me, I understand where they're coming from. But here's the thing. If you walk through that door, you are cutting yourself off from that lie that the devil tells you that your personal inadequacies are the reason that you can't do something for God. Because you're not focused on yourself anymore. You're focused on him. And the next time you catch yourself like, but I'm not sure I'm good enough to go through that door. I want you to remember Paul's letter to the church in Corinth and how he started it off in verse 26. Because the truth of the matter is the next time you feel like, but I'm not good enough. Remember, of course not. You're not. And neither am I. And neither is anyone that you know. 
Just like the church in Corinth, none of us are perfect. But God. But when God shows up, it changes things. You might not be smart enough, influential enough, or rich enough, but according to the Apostle Paul, God has chosen the foolish things, the foolish ones, the foolish people to accomplish his purposes, and that includes you and me. It's not just the church of Corinth almost 2,000 years ago. This is still how God works today, and I can say that with confidence because this is how God has worked through the whole Bible. This book is filled with stories of people. Other people did not think that the people God used were good enough for God to use them. Oftentimes, the people themselves that God was using or calling to go through a door, they're like, you can't, but I'm not good enough. You can't use me. Just think about some examples. Abraham and Sarah thought they were too old, but God used them. Jeremiah and Timothy thought they were too young, but God used them too. Jacob was a habitual liar, but God used him. Gideon was terrified and afraid, but God used him to lead an army. Rahab was a lady of the night working in the red light district, but she saved the people of Israel in the battle against Jericho. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was depressed and suicidal. Jonah literally ran to the other side of the map to get away from God's calling to go to Nineveh, but God used him even though Jonah really didn't want to be used. Naomi was a widow in a foreign land, but it was through some things she did that the great King David of Israel ended up being born. Job lost his family and went bankrupt. In the Gospels, we come across even more people, people that others thought were foolish, people who had tons of excuses for why God couldn't use them. John the Baptist was a hermit living in the desert who ate bugs. It's a great resume, right? But God used him. The Samaritan woman had been divorced on numerous occasions, but Jesus used her to save a whole village. The disciples ran away when Jesus really needed them, including Peter who denied Jesus after swearing he would never do anything like that. But God used those guys and through his power, they turned the world upside down. The demoniac in the Gerasenes was possessed by a legion of demons, but God used him and it was through his testimony that the feeding of the 4,000 happened. Zacchaeus was a tax cheat he was viewed as a traitor of Israel, but God used him. Lazarus had been dead for four days. I just want to say, as excuses go, being dead, it's a really good reason, but I can't, I can't do it, right? But Jesus came, God in the flesh came, and but God spoke the words, and Lazarus walked out that door and walked out of the tomb, all right? There is no excuse when we factor in those words, but God. None of those people were good enough for God to use, but that doesn't matter because as Paul pointed out, God uses the foolish things of this world so that he gets the glory. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul knew this better than anyone because God had chosen him to lead his church. Even though if we read in the book of Acts, Paul had 
sort of built his brand on persecuting Christians and arranging for them to be thrown in prison and even killed. So the next time you are facing an open door and there's a situation or an opportunity where you feel like you aren't good enough, my question is, are you going to start with the words, but I, or but God? I hope you're going to start with the words, but God, and then channel your inner Kool-Aid man and just say, oh yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ignore all those excuses and walk through that door. That's your application for today's message. Whatever it is that you're facing right now, instead of focused on the reasons you can't do it and the but eyes and the but eyes and the but eyes, say, but God, and walk through that door. Please don't you give up. Don't stop praying. Don't give in to sin, and don't stop thinking about what God has in store for your future. No matter what kind of pain and heartache you are facing, no matter the ways that you've stumbled and fallen in the past, no matter the number of times where you felt like you were a failure, and you said, but I'm not spiritual enough, but I'm not good enough, but I'm not the kind of person that God could use. I want you to remember that God made you and he loves you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. But God changes everything. And as we've been going through this message and I cited all these different examples, perhaps your thought was just like, okay, all right, fine. Well, that's for somebody else. That was for Bible times. I, I don't... Like, my life doesn't look a lot like those stories. And I just want you to know, those people took a risk and God showed up and they walked through that door. And that's why their stories are so remarkable. If you stay in this place, even if you don't like it, just because it's safe and because it's known, you will miss out on the excitement of being used by God to walk through an open door into the unknown and accomplish something for his kingdom. And if you think that's just something that God did back in the days of the Bible, it's just not true. God is still working like that today. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.